Hi and welcome to Malicious Life B-Sides. I'm Ran Levy. Yeah, I know. We should be airing a regular narrative episode today, as we do every other week. Unfortunately, that episode is still in the works, and so I decided to switch places with next week's planned B-Side episode. This is actually a good thing, because in this episode we'll hear about a new cyber espionage campaign unearthed last week by Cyberism's Nocturnus team named Operation Cuckoobies. This operation, as Cyberism's researchers wrote in their report, is unusual in several ways. Firstly, it's been going on from as early as 2019, but because it was so stealthy and sophisticated, it went unnoticed for more than three years. Secondly, the attackers abused Windows CLSF mechanism, short for Common Log File System, a rarely used avenue of attack. And lastly, the operation features an elaborate and highly complex multi-stage infection chain, which also enabled it to remain undetected for such a long time. Nate Nelson spoke about the attack with Asaf Dahan, senior director and threat research lead at Nocturnus and a frequent guest of our show. Before I let you listen to the conversation, I'd like to remind you that our live Q&A event will take place on June 13th at 12 p.m. East Coast and 9 a.m. West Coast. It will be an online event, and we'll post the link to the event a few days before the event itself. Don't worry, we'll take care of everything. The microphones, the cameras, you just need to do one thing. Ask us interesting questions. That's the whole point of doing an AMA event, you know. What is it that you're dying to know about malicious life? I especially love talking to listeners from far away and exotic places around the world, just so I can tell my buddies, did you know that we have listeners in Gary, Indiana? So think about an interesting question, even two, and write it to us on Twitter or by email. My email is ran at ranlevy.com. That's R-A-N at R-A-N-L-E-V-I dot com. And you can even record yourself and send us the recording. Again, June 13th, 12 p.m. East Coast, 9 a.m. West Coast. Malicious Life. And now to Nate Nelson and Asaf Dahan. Enjoy the interview. What news do you have for us? First thing first, we we managed to find this uh, really um, outstanding or quite phenomenal cyber espionage operation. When I say outstanding, I mean that not not only just the the information that they were trying to steal, but also in the level of the sophistication that we observed, which was uh, pretty pretty uh, you know state of the art um, type of operation. And who is they here? We attributed the attack to the uh, a group called Winti or APT forty one, which is um, um, known to be um, aligned with Chinese state interests, so it's state sponsored. Also, maybe worth mentioning that uh, this group is not just uh, any group uh, like any other. They're quite uh, quite advanced. They've been out there since at least twenty ten. Uh, they're one of the most uh, industrious uh, yet elusive 
Chinese APT groups. Um, they're considered by many people to be like the, the kings of uh, cyber espionage or intellectual property theft. And the FBI and the DOJ uh, issued arrest warrants and, and indictments in the past. So um, in many cases, you know, um, at least some intelligence agencies and law enforcement agencies can actually tie actual people to, to, uh, to this group. And what were they looking for? Was it the usual technology, intellectual property? We saw that uh, the attackers tried to uh, steal, uh, you know, stuff like uh, blueprints, formulas, uh, manufacturing information. So basically, they, they target a different manu- uh, technology and manufacturing company um, all around the globe. So spanning from Asia, um, Europe and North America. And uh, the idea was to uh, obtain, uh, I guess, illegally, <laughs> technology. I don't think that there's going to be a single person listening to this conversation thinking, you know, hold on, China steals intellectual property from the West. This is something I didn't know before. They've done it. They're doing it. They'll continue to do it. So what, in your view, makes this particular news newsworthy? We think that... Um, this attack, and as well as other attacks that we've been seeing and other uh, vendors have been seeing and other uh, law enforcement agencies uh, reported, are very much aligned with, um, with a, a plan uh, that is called Made in China 2025 that I think it was um, launched in 2015 or 2016, around that time. And basically... Um, the plan, and according to the Chinese administration, was to become self-reliant. And uh, when it comes to uh, certain areas of, of uh, technology, uh, so they're able to uh, develop and manufacture a lot of um, um, technologies and material uh, on their own, and also to become competitive with uh, the West and other um, Asian countries. So um, there are different fields that they kind of like put on top of that plan. Uh, so like information technology, aerospace, marine engineering, uh, electric power equipment, uh, biopharmaceutical research, uh, agriculture, stuff like that. So what kind of impact has Made in China 2025 had thus far? There's a, re- a public report uh, from the that was um, uh, issued or published by the FBI in 2019 that actually talks about the um, the consequences of the the plan and basically they're saying that the damage to the American economy, like the, the financial damage to the American economy, is around I think between 200 to 600 billion dollars a year, uh, and which they attribute to uh, Chinese intellectual property theft, and that was back in 2019. And if we're ta- if you're considering that this attack is global, and they attacked entities and organizations in Asia and the European Union as well, so we're probably talking about uh, larger numbers. M- maybe it's also a good time to discuss Winti because I think it's one of the most uh, controversial terms in the world of threat intelligence. It seems like no one seemed to agree about who are who they actually are, because um, there have been a lot of, uh, when it comes to attribution, there's been a lot of mess around uh, attributing Winti. Because? We treat it as a, a big umbrella term or this big umbrella group. We actually monitor or track 10 different clusters that 
can fall under that Winti uh, umbrella. So it's important to understand that it's uh, at this group, as, you know, it's been uh, active for over a, a decade now, and it has um, changed. It has uh, evolved over the years. And what's interesting to say is that um, I think there has been, there have been a couple of reports by Mandiant and other other researchers that also noticed that they uh, engage in cyber crimes. So imagine that you have uh, hackers working for the state. They do like their nine to five hacking, and then at nighttime they probably want to, you know, get some extra <laughs> extra dollars. Um, so they engage in cyber crime. Right. Is and if if you don't want to speculate anymore, we could just skip this. But is there any way that you square in your head that they do things that seem state sponsored and then also things that seem cyber criminal in nature? It's not surprising. Again, like um, if you think if you consider, um, let's say, a state employs or uses cyber mercenaries to 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 get you know the you know the, for their black ops or like kind of like uh, dir- dirty jobs right so these uh, mercenaries are kind of free agents so they can use the same techniques and tools that they're using for state sponsored uh, operations uh, for their own benefit we've we've seen the russians do it we've seen the iranians do it uh, so why not the chinese fair enough so Let's break down their MO then. Um, how does Winty first breach a target? What we saw in this campaign, and also uh, it corresponds to other Winty attacks, is that they really like, uh, I mean, their, their entry vector or entry point is usually uh, through a compromised externally facing or internet facing server. So in this case, it was uh, an ERP solution that had a, so they had like a, a server that was internet facing. Um, they we detected scanning, or we saw indication of uh, scanning uh, activity around that, trying to look to see if it was vulnerable or not. And ultimately, they were able to exploit uh, multiple remote command execution vulnerabilities, uh, and that gave them that uh, way in. All right. So they're in now. What comes next? They, uh, the, the next step was to install a series of web shells on these servers. Uh, I think we counted over 20 different web shells. Um, and that gave them, you know, their initial foothold, but also the, the web shell served as a means of running different uh, reconnaissance commands, uploading new tools uh, or additional tools to the environment. So once they... Um, installed the web shell, um, they uh, started uh, running reconnaissance command, basically trying to uh, map out the network, trying to understand who are the interesting users, uh, where um, understand the network topology, uh, see where they can get uh, where the, um, let's say, crown jewels uh, might uh, reside in. Um, and it was interesting because um, they they actually invested a lot of time and efforts in that in their reconnaissance, and we saw them. You know, there, there's a lot of uh, reconnaissance tools out there, and especially uh, we see a lot of um, there. Uh, some Chinese threat actors, you know, they bring their own tools, either custom or just like from Chinese hack hacking forums. 
tools that are available on you know, Chinese hacking forum. In this instance, or in this case, most of the tools uh, that were used were simply Windows binaries. So they were living off the land, if you will. But why do it the hard way if they could just use any of the tools that are out there? Well, the idea behind it was to uh, not to raise too many red flags. Um, and it seemed like it worked. The next step for them was to uh, dump credentials. So they had um, they used several techniques. So some of them uh, are quite known. But we did see them um, use a custom-built credential dumper, so not the regular Mimikatz or other known tools, um, which was quite, quite fascinating to see. Once they obtained uh, credentials for high uh, high-privileged users, they started this lateral movement spree um, using web shells and uh, different uh, scheduled tasks that they ran. Uh, so they methodically started to progress to, um, you know, hop from one server to another, from one machine to another, until ultimately they were able to gain domain admin privileges. Once they got that, um, pretty much the network was theirs. And unfortunately, due to, let's say, uh, inadequate or poor network segmentation, we actually saw them hopping between different regional networks and different business units, uh, something that you don't really expect when, you, you're, um, when you're doing incident response for, for large corporations. You think there'd be more segmentation, but uh, at least in the cases that we observed, the hackers were... Uh, kind of free to roam around from uh, one uh, segment of the network to the other, which ultimately enabled them, like that freedom enabled them to get to where they wanted to. The attack surface has never been larger or more diverse, yet defenders are still forced to piece together intelligence from numerous siloed solutions that produce a flood of alerts in order to detect and end complex malicious operations. No more. Defenders can now leverage AI-driven Cyberism XDR powered by Google Chronicle to predict, understand, and end sophisticated attacks with the only solution on the market that delivers planetary-scale protection that allows them to predict attacker behavior through a revolutionary, operation-centric detection and response approach. Cyberism and Google Cloud are dedicated to teaming with defenders to end cyber attacks from endpoints to the enterprise to everywhere. Learn more about Cyberism XDR powered by Google Chronicle at cyberism.com slash platform slash XDR. And then what do they do now that they're at their destination? Once they identified the crown jewels, like where the, like the interesting servers, they started uh, dumping a lot of data and, um, moving it to like a staging location where they archived the data. That was like one of the most fascinating steps uh, because we were able to see what, what they did and what type of files or information they were after. Uh, and that gave us that aha moment uh, of uh, understanding the attack. Because I think uh, for every investigator or analyst, there's like, I think the intent is very important. You want, you want to understand uh, who's behind the attack and why are they doing this? And that was uh, this 
rare mo- moment of of clarity, we were actually able to see uh, the type of um, files they were after. So they they looked into uh, sensitive documents, blueprints, diagrams, formulas, and also um, SOPs. So uh, basically, manufacturing related. Uh, information. So let's say you want to uh, steal, you know, a secret sauce, right? Or like, uh, like a certain material, or a certain technology. So you can, you know, grab the formula, right? But then you also need to know how to manufacture it, right? Like what type of machinery to use and, and so on. So we saw that they were after all of that information, which was quite fascinating and quite alarming. These companies, they, they produce all sorts of technologies and all sorts of materials. So uh, one can assume how much data was stolen uh, over that uh, period of time, because, as I said, we got to the scene only, at, only in 2021. Okay. I have a few questions about a number of things you said there. Firstly, I've seen a number of sophisticated multi-stage attack chains before, but this one has a particular quality to it. You describe in the paper that you guys published, uh, you describe it as a kind of house of cards. Okay, now you're getting to the uh, interesting part or the more unique aspect of the attack, uh, which talks about the malware infection. So what I described so far was like... um, what the, how the attackers got in, what they did once they were in. But ultimately, the goal, I mean, like from a technical perspective, was to um, be able to deploy and, and install a very advanced uh, rootkit, really state-of-the-art type of uh, rootkit, um, which is designed for extra stealth and evasiveness. Uh, and we call this rootkit WinKit, which is actually an evolution of, of an older rootkit that uh, was used by the group. Now, they didn't just like upload a file uh, to the environment and double click and bam, you know, it ran. Um, the deployment or infection chain was quite intricate and complex. Um, so we're talking about like six different components that had to work, um, that are, that are I- interdependent and had to be executed in a certain order, and they all have to be present in order for for the um, deployment or the installation of Winkit to succeed. So let's say if you take out one of those components, this whole thing falls apart and disintegrates, which makes the installation process very sensitive. Let's say if an AV, for instance, or... Something, something happens, and uh, one of the files or components is is compromised or detected. It would jeopardize the attacker's ability to install that rootkit. But on the other hand, it also makes it very, very stealthy and evasive because each component on its own doesn't look very malicious. Or if you, even if you try to analyze it, you might suspect, okay, maybe there's something a bit off or suspicious, but you can't really understand the full picture. You have to have all six components and you have to analyze them in a certain order uh, to make sense out of it. And to the best of my knowledge, we were the first to kind of like get all, all, all of six components and observe them together and analyze their their dependency. And that's how we were able to kind of like reconstruct 
the attack, the full aspect of the attack, and also get to the wink at deployment part. And there's one other notable stealth technique you guys outline. Could you tell me about the CLFS abuse? As a technique, as, a, as a, an attack technique, is something that is quite rare. And again, to the best of my knowledge or memory, they're the first one that abused that mechanism. Um, the, I mean, the Winty group. So the, the CLFS mechanism is basically a, a, logging, a logging framework. It's like built in, in Windows. And the way that uh, the group abused it is basically they use this logging mechanism to stash their payloads in a place that most people slash um, security products would not even think of, of looking. Again, it shows something very, or it tells us a very interesting story about the resourcefulness and, um, and uh, yeah, and how much effort they put it into it, the, the attackers, I mean, because the CLFS mechanism is is not really documented by Microsoft, as far as I remember. So they had to reverse engineer the file form format and the protocol in order to, you know, make something just, first of all, to understand it and be to exploit it or to abuse it. So you finally crack the case, but then it's a while before you publish a report about it. Well, as I said, we, we got to the scene at, uh, we were called to the scene at uh, 2021. Before that, we were not deployed there, uh, but we were able to gather a lot of forensic uh, data that uh, pretty much allowed us to reconstruct the attack. And also we had this a bit of a um, cat and mouse game with them because once they were, we found them, we attempted to remediation, they resisted it, we kicked them out, they came back. So th- there was a bit of a, uh, you know, a, a chess game with, or a cat and mouse game with, with the attackers. So that they're, they're really a resilient and persistent type of attacker. That's very interesting because I would have imagined that once they knew that you guys were hot on their tails, they would have run away. But you're saying they kept at it. Um, why is that? Is it because they had taken steps to make sure that you couldn't find out who they were? Ultimately, it seems like you guys did. Or just because they didn't care that you knew what they were doing and who they were? So that's a very interesting question. Um, Yeah, you know, sometimes it's a bit counterintuitive because when you think about uh, nation-state operations, you'd think that uh, once you're burnt, uh, you don't go back immediately to the scene and, and, you know, and hit, hit, hit it again. However, um, based on, well, it happened in this operation, but it happened in other uh, cases, um, and even specifically with Chinese threat actors. We've seen it um, in Soft Cell and Dead Ringer, if you remember, that they came back four times. Um, and, and there's something a bit counterintuitive about it, as I said. Like, you'd think that they would just stop and, uh, you know, regroup and maybe try to attack it in a, I don't know, like in a year time or uh, in a l- longer, um, you know, having this uh, longer hiatus. But uh, no, here they were, you know, they, after a couple of weeks, they were back again. And I, I think they, it was like a calculated risk. You know, I think uh, getting the information was more important for them than getting exposed. So that was like the result of their risk management. What, Asaf, is the most important thing that we should take away from this story? 
what we what we saw here is that I mean there were some components of the attack that were quite advanced and and sophisticated, but what ultimately enabled uh, the attackers to roam around freely in the network and to do you know as they wish for as long as they have uh, had to do with uh, poor IT hygiene. We saw that I mean we were able to to kind of trace back the 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 root cause of a lot of the actions that they were able uh, to take uh, to unpatch systems. So a lot of the system were uh, out of date or, or simply unpatched. We saw that there was insufficient network segmentation, uh, a lot of uh, unmanaged assets, forgotten accounts, uh, uh, or simply uh, multi-factor authentication. MFA was not enabled on on privileged or high, highly privileged accounts. And it sounds very basic and you say, oh, of course, that's like, you know, uh, but from our experience, uh, even, uh, or sometimes not even, especially big companies that you think that uh, have this uh, robust IP, um, IT uh, procedures and protocols, uh, they tend to to be quite vulnerable to, to, to the basics. And it, of course, it's, it's hard to judge because patch management and just like managing, uh, in general, managing uh, huge environments, huge networks of uh, hundreds of thousands of, of, of uh, endpoints is not uh, an easy thing to do. And of course, uh, the bigger you are, it's more likely that some server or some, uh, yeah, some server will be forgotten or some rogue account or, or like a, there'll be like all of those things that are harder to manage. But the point is it only takes one, you know, unpatched system for the attackers to get in.